Welcome to Who Started the Fire, a podcast all about the 1989 Billy Joel song, We Didn't Start the Fire. Each episode, we're going to be taking a look at the song line by line and giving a brief overview of all of the events that are referenced, and a few that aren't. We hope you enjoy. Episode 21, Lebanon, Charles de Gaulle, California Baseball. I'm Jen. And I'm Mark. Here we go. Hello, and here we are again. There is a brand new development that we would like to share with you all. I'm sure they know about it. Do they? I'm sure they do. I don't know. I think they do. They might. I'm pretty sure that they've, like, already guessed. (laughs) Uh, so we recorded the last episode a few days before, and then it was released a few days after the Fallout Boy updated version of We Didn't Start the Fire. So yes, we know about it. Yes, we heard it. Yes, our timing is bad. (laughs) (laughs) Whoops, we missed that Uh, last time. (laughs) You know what? It's fine. You can't plan for what you don't know about. It's fine. Uh, but it's good. Yeah. It's so good. It holds up. It really does. It really does. And um, once we're all done with this version of the song. We might have a season two. We're probably going to do the updated one, too. Or a chapter two. or I don't know. I don't know. What I don't know what we, you volume we're, two? We're, volume two. Volume two. That feels like We're it. already kind of doing or, this in seasons. Yeah. Like maybe it's part two. <laughs> part two. Part two. 2.0. To be continued. Who started the fire 2.0? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. We'll figure it out yeah. when the time comes. We've got time yet. Um, I already know more words of the new version. <laughs> she does. She's already singing it around the house. It gets stuck in my head a lot. It holds up so well. And I was a Fallout Boy <laughs> fan from way back in the day. So it like definitely hits the nostalgia factor for me in multiple ways. Um, so yes, don't worry. We know about it. Uh, and it, yeah, it's it's coming. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> but that means that first we have to finish this version. Yes. So um, we should probably talk about the things in this line of the song. Well, let's get to it. Okay. Uh, so the events for this episode take place in and around 1958, give or take a little bit. Okay. Uh, as usual, uh, the chronology on this isn't always 100% um cemented in the same year from one uh reference to the next uh he kind of has this habit of floating a little bit like it's a loosely chronological order of things close enough though. yeah yeah because sometimes the rhythm just isn't right if you do it strictly in timeline order so you know artistic license and all that yeah <laughs> uh <laughs> so yes we're talking about like roughly 1958 in this episode Uh, Lots of new developments and quite a lot of uh, tie-ins to past episodes. Um, I think pretty much everything that we're talking about today ties back to at least one previous episode in some way, shape, or form. Uh, The only one that might not is uh, Charles de Gaulle, um, and that's because... We're kind of talking to we're we're going a little bit further 
back in history to lay the groundwork for his uh, reference in the song. And then a lot of the things that he does uh, throughout his lifetime ties into future song references. So he's the only one where maybe we don't really have much of a reference or it's like a very loose reference that might be in there. But he does... Uh, have connections to a lot of other things that happen throughout the song as well. So okay, it's a lot of interconnectedness in this episode. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Mm-hmm. So let's just kind of get into it. All of these have, well, not all of these, uh, Lebanon and Charles de Gaulle, there's a lot of content to discuss. And even California baseball has a fair amount. I know that uh, I have a track record of just very much giving... Oh, sports. Yeah, of, eh. of just glossing right over all of the baseball references. Uh, this is the exception where I talk a, a bit more in depth because it is not something that involves a lot of baseball stats. Jen really loves her sports ball. Uh, I gotta, I'll tell you what. Big sports ball fan over here. Go team. Um <laughs> <laughs> Uh, in all seriousness, though, I am terrible at doing baseball research typically because I'm not very good at understanding the way that the stats are presented in it for some reason. I don't know. It just doesn't make sense in my brain the way that it's usually like recorded and presented. But this episode, I'm not going through an individual player's, you know, career performance history or anything like that. So I don't have to just slog my way through a bunch of things that don't make any sense in my mind i can i can actually understand the research <laughs> for this one so wow. i know the the rare time where i don't just go and that's baseball bye <laughs> <laughs> uh okay should we go ahead and get started though okay all right so let's talk about lebanon Lebanon. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and assume you don't have any guess for what this one is. Uh, I don't know. That's okay. I didn't either. Um, so for this, uh, this part in the song, Lebanon is referring to a demonstration which becomes an insurrection in May of 1958. Uh, and that is a result of tense relationships between Lebanon, Egypt, Syria, France, and Britain. Uh, and it kind of becomes this global thing. Everybody was talking about it. Everybody was kind of keeping an eye on it. Um, and it was uh, definitely something that in the spring of 1958, if somebody said Lebanon, you you probably knew what they were talking about. Okay. Uh, it was just kind of one of those things. It, it would be like um, if we said... Ukraine. Ukraine or, you know... Um, yeah, or or Moscow, or yeah, <laughs> you know, it, it's that same kind of thing. Uh, just everybody's kind of, even if everybody's not involved in it, everybody knows what's happening in it. Um, so that that is most likely what this song is referencing. Okay. Yes. So we're gonna give a little. I'm going to give a little bit of background information because I have a habit of just going. Ooh, that's interesting, uh, and doing a lot of extraneous research. So uh, the Republic of Lebanon is on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, just in case anybody wasn't 100% sure of where that's at. And it declared independence in 1943 and is considered a parliamentary democracy. Hmm. So members of parliament, um, they're also sometimes called the Chamber of Deputies, uh, and these people are elected 
by the population. Uh, so they're voted into office and they yep. have four year long terms. Um, and every six years, these 128 members of parliament or deputies will elect the president. Uh, and that person is elected from within the members of parliament. So they'll vote amongst themselves for one of their own to take the position of president of Lebanon uh, every six years. Gotcha. Yes. Uh, and the presidential term obviously is six years long. That's why it happens every six years. Uh, and there is technically no limit to the number of terms that a person is allowed to serve if elected. Um, however, the terms cannot be consecutive. So, hmm. like, you could serve as many terms as conceivably you're able to do in a lifetime, uh, but... You got big breaks. You got big breaks, yeah. So you can't be elected back-to-back. -back. There has to be at least one six-year term in between each of the ones that you would serve. So most people really don't serve more than two terms uh, because of the way that they're timed. Gotcha. But there's no, like, hard and fast rule that says that you can't serve yeah. more. It's just over the course of people's political careers. That's usually all they've got time for. Yeah. Um, and in May of 1958, the president of Lebanon was President Camille Shamoun, uh, and he sought to amend the Lebanese constitution, which would allow for these terms to be elected consecutively. So he was trying to remove that six-year waiting period. Ah, okay. Uh-huh. Um, and this... Uh, move, this plan, this agenda, whatever word you would like to use with it, along with some some tension surrounding his perceived pro-Western behaviors, sparked a rebellion amongst the people of Lebanon. They did not like this uh. at all. <laughs> um, and it that is what directly feeds into uh, this demonstration and insurrection in May. Uh, so before he was elected as president... Um, Camille Shamoun was a member of a group called the Constitutional Bloc, which was a political faction predominantly made up of Christians who emphasized their Arabic heritage in an attempt to build up relationships with Muslim groups within the country. Um, and Lebanon has had a long history with both Muslim and Christian rulers, and the demographics amongst these two groups is changing pretty frequently. Currently, the majority is Muslim, with about 67% of the uh, of the population identifying as such. Um, but that wasn't the case in the 1950s, like the mid to late 1950s. In 1956, Christians made up a majority of the population, with approximately 54% of the people uh, who were sampled identifying as Christian, and then 44% identified as Muslim. However, the data sets might have been a little bit skewed. Uh, there were some allegations that the data was gathered uh, in such a way that it would have favored respondents who answered as Christian as opposed to Muslim. Mm. Um, apparently, a lot of the people that were pulled for this data sample participated in a government program that frequently excluded Muslim citizens from being able to participate in. So if you're pulling from uh, a sample that is inherently biased, your results are not going to necessarily be accurate. Yeah. So uh, the official numbers for 1956 were 54% Christian and 44% Muslim, but there's a little bit of 
question as to whether that was genuinely what the population makeup was um, or not. Gotcha. Just because there were eh, maybe some questionable mm, tactics that yeah. were employed. <laughs> um, and either way, though, either way, um, there was still this like very close divide amongst the population as far as religious beliefs and sentiments. Um, even though on paper, the Christians were the majority, it, it that's not a very big difference. 10% of the population identifying differently than, yeah. you know, or, well, I shouldn't say different, uh, more than the whole population because we, we don't have those, those, if you add it up, those two numbers aren't a hundred percent, it's 98. Right. Um, but still, you know, 10%, lead for the majority makeup is really not that big of a difference yeah um comparatively uh, especially when you are in other places where right it's significantly larger differences yes exactly um so there there were some tensions between these two groups that uh would frequently come up in like political debates and and beliefs and platforms and things like that as well and shamoon was a christian um politician and a christian leader uh in a relatively um equally divided country let's put it that way because especially if those numbers were skewed um it's entirely possible that it was in fact a majority muslim population that he was elected to lead yeah um but anyway, so Shamoon is a Christian president uh, in a closely divided population, and he maintained a relationship with Britain and with France. Uh, and Muslim communities in 1956 started asking him to sever ties with those two countries in support of Nasser. Uh, do you remember Yep. Yep. With the whole Suez Canal and mm-hmm. that uh, dispute about the ownership of the canal and who should be receiving the tolls and the monies um, from the shipping and the usage of the canal. Um, the Muslim community in Lebanon wanted to ally with Egypt, with Nasser, particularly mm-hmm. in support of the Suez Canal dispute. Uh, and Shamoon had throughout his political career, wanted to maintain ties to Britain and France as allies. Uh, They're very powerful figures on the geopolitical stage then and now, and he thought it was valuable to maintain a relationship with them. Um, So naturally, this caused some tension. People felt like he wasn't Mm. um, maybe loyal to Lebanon because of his relationship with those two countries as well as with his belief system being different than what half to possibly a majority of the country believed. Uh, So there was just a lot of tensions where people felt like he wasn't really representative of what they wanted and needed in a leader at that point in time. And despite these requests that he, you know, uh, sever his relation or sever ties both personal and uh, uh, official uh, with the two countries, he decided to maintain the relationships that he had cultivated. And he even appointed a pro-Western minister of foreign affairs who felt the same way that he did about strengthening and maintaining relationships with Great Britain, with France, and as well as with other uh, Western power countries throughout Europe and and in the U.S. as well. Hmm. And, you know, this is all during the Suez Canal crisis. And... 
while all of that is also happening, the dispute between Egypt, France, and Great Britain about the Suez Canal, uh, this is also when Nasser is really spearheading his pan-Arabism um, leadership ideals, right, where he wanted to unite all of the Middle East, uh, kind of similarly to the way that the European Union is formed right now, where mm. it's oh yeah, it's technically individual countries, but they're all working together collectively as like a larger nation state. Um, so he's working towards this pan-Arabic coalition. Um, he's in a dispute with Western powers. And a lot of Arabic and Muslim people throughout the Middle East lent their support to Egypt during this time. Yeah. Uh, and that included a large portion of the population of Lebanon. Uh, however, Camille Shamoun maintained relationships with uh, the people that were allied against Nassar in this particular instance. Mm. Uh, and so there was a lot of uh, hostilities building up towards him, thinking that, you know, he really wasn't working towards this pan-Arabic um, ideal or towards the wants and the needs of the people of Lebanon. And Egypt and Syria had decided to join together as a new sovereign power. They called themselves the United Arab Republic, um, and this happened in 1958. Um, it was, however, dissolved in 1961, so it was very short oh, yeah. Yes, uh, and that was because Syria was kind of strong-armed into the agreement, and it definitely favored Egypt. Uh, uh, and it basically just kind of made Syria a puppet state of Egypt. But that's entirely <laughs> different. Um, but seeing this, the creation of this UAR, um, a lot of Lebanese people wanted to to strengthen their relationships with the UAR um, and maybe even join into it as well. Oh. Uh, they wanted to, they really did want to throw all of their support into Nassar, everything he was doing at the time. Uh, and Shamoon didn't. Um, he was a little bit hesitant. He didn't really want to get too tied up with Nasser. Um, I think maybe he had some some question marks regarding how and why Syria ended up in the position that they did and was maybe a little bit afraid yeah. that Lebanon would be in a similar position where um, everything heavily favors Egypt and you're just kind of stuck there yeah. tagging along. So when he introduced this plan to change the constitution of Lebanon to allow for consecutive presidential terms, uh, that was it. That was too much. Uh, <laughs> the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back, so to say. Yeah. Um, and people started demonstrating against him um, and... They, they were getting very upset with him. It started turning um, physical, uh, oh. the demonstrations did. Um, and when the pro-Western king of Iraq was assassinated, uh, it scared Shamoon enough that he actually contacted the U.S. for aid. Uh, really? Seeing the way that the people of Lebanon were responding to his leadership, um, seeing the, the tensions in Egypt, and then a neighboring country's king is assassinated for being pro-Western hmm. when he was as well. Yeah. It's a very scary situation to find yourself in. Yeah. Um, so he contacted the U.S. for aid. Um, and Eisenhower had pledged to resist Soviet interference in the Middle East. Um, 
earlier on in the decade. And so there were some concerns because Egypt was strengthening its ties with the USSR in retaliation to the conflict going on with uh, the UK. Uh, And so Eisenhower was a little bit concerned that if he didn't respond, Lebanon would end up basically falling uh, and Uh, would either become a part of the UAR, which had been strengthening ties with the USSR, um, or would directly turn to the Soviets for aid should the U.S. fail to help. So uh, the U.S. launched Operation Blue Bat in response to this call for aid from Shamoon. And 5,000 Marines and 14,000 other military members arrived in Beirut, uh, but they didn't encounter encounter any opposition. And they didn't know what they were walking into. They thought that they might be facing some hostility Uh or some insurrectionists. Uh, They genuinely didn't know what the situation on the ground was. Uh, So when they arrived and they were welcomed by locals, it was a little uh, jarring. They're just like, oh, hey. (laughs) Yeah. Well, there's accounts that um, when they landed, uh, the people that were like spending the day at the beach or vacationing at the beach or in these little beach towns near where the landing happened, uh, they were waving and smiling and um, trying to sell souvenirs <laughs> uh, to, you know, the U.S. military members. And so they genuinely, they, they didn't expect that reception. They didn't know if they were going to be meeting armed conflict or not, but they didn't expect to be welcomed. Um, and it is a possibility that the locals just thought that the soldiers were there as tourists. Um, apparently, Beirut was a very frequent R&R stop for U.S. military for a number of years. And so mm. it's possible that they just assumed that they were here to spend money and blow off steam. Gotcha. Yeah. And that was why they responded the way that they did. <laughs> um, but either way, the U.S. occupation of Lebanon was pretty short uh, from July 15th to October. Uh, and it became very clear that the country was never truly in danger of converting to communism. Um Especially seeing as the Civil War itself ended very shortly after those initial riots uh, following the demonstrations began. Uh, so it it just kind of was like a, a flash in the pan. It wasn't yeah. actually a spark of true revolution. Um, it was just people were getting upset with their leader and they wanted him to know it. Gotcha. Yes. Uh, and... On July 31st of 1958, Shamoon was replaced uh, when the members of parliament elected Fuad Shahab as the next president. Hmm. And power transitioned without incident. Okay. Yeah. And that was it. It it was (laughs) a lot of like tension and a lot of buildup. And I'm sure that things were very tense for a little while in in Lebanon. I don't want to minimize that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it was never genuinely like a a global... um, event yeah you know, it looked like it had the makings of one but it just never quite hit that tipping point where it turned into this big thing that it could have been yeah uh so that's uh that's lebanon all right yeah So now it's time to talk about a French guy. Oh, boy. Uh, we did just watch Futurama recently. So, yep. <laughs> if you didn't get that reference, that's where it came from. Uh, yes. Next up is Charles de Gaulle. Yep. Yeah. 
So, I mean, obviously he was a French guy, uh, but do you have any thoughts about why he's in the song? He did something French. Well, I mean, technically, since he's a French guy, everything he does is French. Um, so... Oh, yeah. Maybe something a little more specific? Uh, he... Think back to the movie that we just watched. He shook people's hands. Oh, my gosh. Uh, he helped liberate France from the Nazis and served as a president of France from June 1958 until 1969. Yeah, I was about to say that. Oh, sure you were. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's that's why he's in the song at this point in time is because he was elected to serve as president of France in 1958 and the events in this episode all take place in and around that year. Yeah. Yes. So that's why. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just being silly. I know you are. <laughs> okay. So any thought, any, any, do you know anything about Charles de Gaulle other than what we learned no. in an animate in an adult animation uh, TV show? No. <laughs> Not, Not really. really. Okay. Yeah. He's, um, I feel like he's one of those figures where everybody kind of knows him, but maybe they don't really know why they know him. Like, it's a very familiar name. Mm -hmm. um, it pops up all the time when you're talking about World War II history. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're super familiar with him or his uh, his deeds that earned his place in history. So I would agree. Like, I, I didn't really know a ton about Charles de Gaulle um, before doing the research. Uh, I knew a little bit about it. I knew that he um, was very prominent in World War II um, and that he is like a very well-known figure within France. Yeah. Um, That's and, about my limit of knowledge about him. <laughs> yeah. And he has an airport named after him in yeah. Paris, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which we'll talk about. Uh, I don't know if we'll have time to talk about it in the segment in this episode, but we'll talk about it in the chorus break if we don't. Because yeah. that's a very fun thing that I fell down a rabbit hole mm. on for way too long. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But so Charles de Gaulle, he was born November 22nd, 1890, um, in a small town outside of Paris. Uh, his parents were both lawyers, and he was the third of five children born to the couple. Uh, de Gaulle uh, was schooled in Christian schools in France. Uh, but in 1905, there was a law that was passed that would separate religion from state matters. So things like church-run schools were no longer allowed to operate. So... His parents sent him to Belgium to finish his studies uh, with a Jesuit school since he could no longer continue his uh, religious education in France. Yeah. So he he ended up going to school in Belgium. There's a there's a big like theme throughout a lot of the people that we talk about in mm -hmm. the show where partway through their education, they they go somewhere else. Yeah. They they study abroad. Uh, so that's just. It's interesting to me. Um, hmm. We uh, maybe it's because uh, we it's don't more common have, then. Well, maybe it was more common then, and I mean, I guess also if like in in Europe everything is a lot closer and a lot easier. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. To to cross borders and to go to other places uh, than it is in you know a place as ridiculously large as the U.S. <laughs> um, and we live in the Midwest, so like. 
you can drive for five hours and still be in the same state. Yeah. You can drive for nine hours and still be in the same state in our uh, instance. Easy. Easy. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it's always, you know, maybe that's part of it, too, is that it just different um, geographic capabilities. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, I didn't grow up in a family where (laughs) going to school in Europe was a a financial opportunity that we had. So maybe that's also part of it. But at any rate, it always fascinates me how many people that we talk about that have um, this this education that started in one place and then finished in another. It's very intriguing to me. After he finished his standard schooling of like primary and secondary schools, he then entered uh, military school when he was 18 years old. And he attended for four years before he graduated and joined the 33rd Infantry Regiment uh, and obviously began a very long and illustrious military career. Um, He would go on to serve under Colonel Python, who was a renowned French general at the time, uh, who would later be tried for treason. Oh. Mm-hmm. And uh, Charles de Gaulle also would be tried for treason. Uh, but the two men were tried for treason for different reasons. Uh. Yes, it's very interesting. Uh, that just kind of caught me by surprise that they both were tried for treason at different times and for different purposes. Because uh, mm. you would assume that because uh, de Gaulle served under Patan and they were both charged, that it would have been, you know, like a group charge yeah, like related or something yeah for the same instance or whatever but nope hmm. it wasn't we'll talk more about it later okay i just thought that was really interesting um so anyway de gaulle served in both world war one and in world war two and during world war one he was actually captured by the germans and he was a pow of the war for a pretty long period of time um and he attempted escape five times <laughs> uh but was not successful um And in the period in between the two world wars, de Gaulle was admitted to a prestigious um, institution in France called Le Col de Guerre, or the School of War. Uh, It's like a military training thing. Um, And he became very outspoken about his belief that the French military needed to modernize, especially after World War I, uh, when he saw how other countries were approaching warfare and how quickly it had changed. Uh, Because, you know, if you really know much about that period, um, warfare really changed dramatically over the course of World War I. Um, And a lot of uh, militaries ended up modernizing kind of on the fly during the fighting to adapt to what the other side was throwing at them and what their allies were capable of and whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And some of them just kind of like clung to what was working and then figured it out in peacetime. Um, And de Gaulle really wanted the French military to modernize, but there was some hesitation about doing so. Um, The French military was really very much focused on defense um, of borders as opposed to preparing for offensive warfare. Um, And it it didn't really embrace a lot of the new tech, um, things like tanks. They were kind of hesitant about adopt, adopting uh, from the sound of what I read in my research. They, they did ultimately adopt it because you couldn't keep riding horses into battle. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not when everybody else is, you know, riding tanks. What? Uh, it's weird. Um, huh. So, like, there were some things, obviously, where there was no denying that those changes needed to be made, whether you wanted to or not. 
Um, but things like how whether they focused on defense or offense and how professional the military was were things that um, de Gaulle and everybody else in military circles had different opinions about. Um, he thought that they needed to be just as well-versed in all offensive tactics as they were in defensive strategies. Um, and he also believed that they needed to turn the, the entire uh, military into a more professional style fighting force, as opposed to just relying on drafted civilians with oh, a few yeah. weeks of training. Um, there was still a place in De Gaulle's um, model for uh, drafting citizens and having them comprise a portion of the fighting force but it was a, a much smaller percentage yeah uh, he believed that you needed well-trained career military men to make up the majority of the people that you were sending into battle uh, as opposed to you know people that were plucked out of their day jobs um, and handed weapons yeah um, and he wrote several books uh, throughout the course of his lifetime about warfare. In particular, there was his 1934 book, which is often translated as uh, The Future Army or Towards a Future Army, um, where it really does discuss the changes that he felt the, the military in France needed to move towards after seeing the way that world, uh, the war was changing uh, the the tactics and the strategies and even just the technologies um, f following World War One. Uh, but you know, again, he was really the only one that was speaking loudly about this. There were some people that were on his side with things like incorporating tanks or reducing the number of draftees that comprise the army. But overall, he was the only one that was really talking about all of these things and to the same. To the extreme measures that he was talking about and so he kind of alienated himself in military and political circles at the time mm -hmm. uh, but despite the fact that he wasn't the most popular person at dinner parties <laughs> uh, he he did well he he continued to rise through the ranks um, and he was a colonel by the time that france and the uk declared war on germany um, so the two countries declared war on germany after hitler's invasion of poland on september 3rd of 1939 well sorry um, they declared war on September 3rd of 1939. Uh, Hitler invaded Poland on September 1st. So mm. just in case that wasn't worded clearly. Gotcha. I don't want yeah. like angry emails correcting me. What? <laughs> I uh, think, you know. Um, and by June of 1940, he had been promoted uh, not just to a general, which he was also promoted to, but he was promoted to the Undersecretary of State for Defense. Uh, and that meant that he was in charge of coordinating the fighting forces between France and the UK against the Nazis. If you are a World War II history buff or, you know, you remember a lot from that segment in your world history class, um, you probably are aware of the fact that the Nazis um, entered Paris in the spring of 1940. Uh, and following that invasion, there was what's called the Dunkirk evacuation, which was where they pulled all of the... Uh, British forces out of France uh, because, you know, Paris is the capital of France and the capital fell to the Nazis. D didn't look super awesome for the French. Yeah. Uh, so the French relocated their government to um, a different location as a result of this. Um, and in June, June 9th of 1940, Charles de Gaulle traveled to the UK to meet with Winston Church Churchill, um, trying to encourage Churchill to... Um, continue supporting France against the Nazis and um, that, you know, basically saying if we give up, 
then France is lost. So like, yeah, help us out, bro. Uh, and nope. yeah, yeah. He was just kind of trying to persuade Churchill that, you know, the, the cause wasn't lost unless they left. Yeah. Um, and while de Gaulle was still in London, France surrendered to the Nazis mm. um, because in, in part because of the fall of Paris, as well as the fact that they just were kind of starting to sweep through the rest of France um, more so than they had before entering the capital. Um, and, Despite his desire to continue fighting and to try to lead, um, you know, the the resistance and the defense against the Nazis, he couldn't immediately return to France from London. Uh, so instead, he made an impassioned radio plea uh, from the BBC studios um, to the people of France, um, encouraging them to resist the Nazis and to continue fighting. Um, because at this point, there was an armistice that was signed that basically was the surrender of France to the Nazis. And there was a whole bunch of like terms and conditions and yeah. you know, all of that official stuff. Um, and he, you know, he was kind of just trying to rally the French people that even though officially we have surrendered, don't stop fighting. Um, and he encouraged all French officers and soldiers who were able to to come to the UK so that they could organize there and continue um, fighting against the Nazis um, and against the, the German takeover of France. And basically, this radio broadcast founded the Free French Forces, uh, which was a group that would be active throughout the war, coordinating, coordinating um, French forces uh, such as they were um, to continue fighting against the Nazis, despite the armistice. Um, and the first broadcast um, was on June 18th, uh, but it was not recorded. Um, it was just kind of like a live radio broadcast. Um, okay. But after hearing the broadcast, I don't know who it was. Somebody realized that this was an important moment and that it needed to be recreated so that it could be saved um, for for future use and for just to kind of preserve. Mm -hmm. So on June 22nd, um, he basically gave the exact same speech again. Oh, um, okay. Only he was a little bit more um, critical about the armistice the second time around. Um, it was, uh, it was, it, it had all of the same things as the original, but uh, he kind of expanded a little bit more that uh, the armistice, you know, spelled the end of France as we knew it, if we basically adopt it. Right. So resist it, please. Um, and this one was obviously recorded because it was recreated with the intent of preserving it. Right. Um, and de Gaulle would end up being charged for treason partially because of this. Hmm. Um, so it, 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 it sounded like it was kind of complicated and like maybe it was more of a making an example out of him type of thing than anything else but he was partially charged with it for his relationships with churchill and with the british military because there was an attack by the royal navy on a french naval force um, and ostensibly that happened to prevent the naval force and base from falling into german hands uh, so the british attacked it um, but this resulted in the death of 1,300 French sailors. Mm. Um, and so after that, the French people didn't feel so warmly towards Churchill and British forces. And so people that continued to support them 
were were viewed as traitors basically and so because he maintained a relationship with Churchill and with the British because he continued to espouse support of them and their efforts against the Nazis and because he continued to encourage all French people who were able to to come help aid in the fight against the Nazis alongside the British, he was also viewed as being treasonous. Oh. So he he was tried with treason. Um, but it, I couldn't really find a whole lot more about that. Uh, but from it, what it sounds like is it, it was just kind of like a, a sham trial that was conducted without him in oh. attendance. And, it, and like as soon as the Nazis lost the war, everybody forgot that it had happened. I was like, what, what treason? Yeah. Yep. Um, and... Colonel Pétain, however, or general at this point, I think, um, he was also charged with treason, but he was charged more for cooperating with the Nazis following the armistice. Uh. Yeah. So this also sounds like it was a little bit of a a show of, of power, maybe, or like a demonstration that it wasn't, I don't know, it doesn't sound like it was like a genuine treason trial, the, oh. the way that you might initially think of when you hear those words. Um, but... It was because he met with Hitler um, about the armistice before and after it was signed. And so he was charged with colluding with the enemy. Okay. Uh, but he wasn't the only person that met with Hitler about this. Um, yeah. And he wasn't the only person that agreed to the armistice. And he wasn't the only person that, you know, followed out some of the terms of the armistice in an attempt to uh, basically not really cooperate but to just kind of prevent maybe like french loss of life um there were other people that were doing the exact same things that he was but he was the one that for whatever reason was chosen to be charged yeah so um it was the same kind of thing he was found kind of like guilty. the fall guy yeah he was the fall guy thank you for yeah. that yeah he was found guilty and he um he wasn't like executed or anything like that he was given a relatively light sentence and he died under house arrest in 1952 mm. yeah um and following uh, World War II, de Gaulle became very active in politics. He had, uh, I think he had kind of realized that if he really wanted to make the types of changes that he needed to make to help France become what he envisioned it could be, um, that he needed to step outside of the military uh, and into offices of power through politics. Uh, so he he became active in politics more so than he had been previously before he was a military man who had politician friends. Now he was a politician as well as a military person. Yeah. Um, and surprisingly, despite the fact that he was um, this well-known prominent figure following that rousing BBC speech um, and kind of like the figurehead for French resistance and had played such a pivotal role in helping to free France from the Nazis – he didn't really do super awesome when he first was transitioning into politics. It was a pretty slow start for him. Um, he had kind of like backed different political candidates in various races um, and they didn't really win. Uh, and he had kind of like loosely formed a political party and they didn't do super awesome. Mm. And he didn't really get a whole lot of traction on his own personal career for a little while there um, because it it really wasn't until the mid fifties that he started seeing any progress in, in transitioning into being a politician. Oh. Um, and in 1958, he was elected as president of France. Um, and uh, this I found kind of interesting. So he was the last president of the fourth Republic of France. And he was also the first president of the fifth Republic of France. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
that sounds a little weird, uh, but it sounds like every so often um, France kind of updates the terms of what it means to be France. (laughs) (laughs) They update the terms and conditions. Yeah, that's kind of like the long and the short of my understanding of it. So it wasn't like they dissolved France and then reformed into (laughs) France 2.0. They were just kind of like, well, this is what old France used to look like. And this is what new France looks like now. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So like they kind of shifted a little bit of like what was in their constitution and how the different branches of their government uh, functioned, like how much power they might hold or like how they could hold themselves in check from one becoming more powerful than it was meant to be, um, you know, things like that. So like uh, they had a version of how their government was structured and meant to run for the fourth Republic. And then they overhauled it to become the fifth Republic, but they like, they never stopped being France. Yeah. <laughs> they, they were just like, no, 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 no. We need to like update the software. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was kind of intriguing. And I, I did a little bit of research about that and it was kind of cool, but we've kind of been talking about some heavy things so far in the show. We haven't really had too much, levity or lightness so i thought that maybe we would close out about charles de gaulle by by taking a a little bit of a turn and talking about something a little more lighthearted. so one i i think it's my favorite quote from charles de gaulle uh, (laughs) but one very famous quote from him is quote how can you govern a country which has 246 varieties of cheese unquote (laughs) i love that I love that so much. Um, I know that it was a metaphor um, and he was just kind of trying to talk about like how diverse um, the whole country is from one region to the next. So how on earth can you be expected to find a way to unify them all into like one collective way forward? Right. Um, But I still am going to talk about cheese. (laughs) (laughs) So 246 is not actually the number of varieties of cheese that exist in France or in the world. Would you like to take a guess at what the real numbers are? Uh, 628. You got to go way higher. 1,628. You still got to go higher. (laughs) 10,628. Okay, now you got to go lower. (laughs) (laughs) It was a little too much. One too many zeros. Um, So there are approximately (laughs) 1,800 types of cheese worldwide. Wow. Yes. And about 1,600 of those can be found in France. Dang. So a little bit more than 246. Yeah. Just just a little bit. Slightly more. Yes. yes, Just just a little bit more. Um, And French cheeses are typically classified into eight different categories. Uh, Those categories are pressed cheeses pressed and cooked cheeses, blue cheeses, soft cheeses with natural rinds, soft cheeses with washed rinds, and fresh cheeses. Um, There are also different categories based on how the cheese was produced. So Hmm. um, there are like farmhouse cheese, which is produced on the farm where the milk is produced. Artisanal cheeses um, are are producers who use relatively small quantities of milk from their own farm, but they might supplement some of that with local... uh, farms contributions as well if they don't quite have enough or if they're trying to make like a specific blend they might uh, collaborate with neighboring farmers within the same community cooperative is dairy with local milk producers in an area that have joined together 
to create cheese collaboratively. Um, and in larger cooperatives, uh, they're actually sometimes capable of producing the same quantities of cheese as like large scale industrial productions. Oh, wow. Yeah. It really just kind of depends on like the size. So some of them make really small quantities and some can make just like huge amounts uh, depending on the size of the operations that are involved and how many of them are working together. Hmm. Um, and then, of course, industrial, which is factory made cheeses uh, from milk sourced wherever they can get it from. Yeah. And then there are also different classifications for types of cheeses uh, that might be like protected uh, methods of production or that can only be produced uh, within certain areas of France. So the most famous example of this is champagne, right? Mm -hmm. True champagne is only produced in the Champagne region of France. Everything else is sparkling wine. They have these um, location design location specific designations for literally everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> including cheeses. So I think, I, I don't know. I fell down a rabbit hole. I ended up. I don't, ended don't they up also have a classification place. for French chefs? Yes, they do. Uh, so if well, it's it's any any professional in France can earn the title, um, but it is most well known amongst chefs. But any artisan can earn it, and it's called the Meilleur Ouvre de France, uh, and it is a very high honor that is bestowed upon professionals. Uh, it's a very intensive process to achieve it, um, and it has very uh, strict regulations for how you go about it and what uh, standards you have to meet to achieve it. Um, but Meilleur Ouvres de France are considered masters of their crafts, um, and they're frequently uh, viewed as some of the most skilled people in that profession globally oh yes so interesting it's a very big deal if you are a, a moth mof yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as it were and like you get you get to wear like a, a little insignia uh with the french flag as well to, nice. to like advertise that you have achieved this very prestigious rank hmm. yeah it's fascinating it's yeah. really interesting um so, yeah, that's, it's, yeah. <laughs> and uh, we, we just fell down a rabbit hole here. I always fall down rabbit holes. <laughs> if you listen to this show, you are not surprised by any of this. <laughs> so, yes, if you ever get the chance to try something that was made by a moth, a mayor de France, I, I would say go for it. Yep. <laughs> uh, they know what they're doing, for sure. So, uh, now that we have gotten, like, ridiculously off track, <laughs> I think that's about going to wrap up Charles de Gaulle. Okay. <laughs> so, what is this info that you have? About baseball. Oh, I think that you, is not sports ball. I think you mean California baseball. California baseball. Yeah, which is our next segment. Okay. Okay. So in 1957, the Brooklyn Dodgers moved to LA and the New York Giants moved to San Francisco in 1958. So both teams relocated from New York to California. Oh. Yeah. And that's it. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thank you. Until <laughs> no, next week. I, prom I promised I would tell you guys a little bit more about baseball stuff this time around. So I'll actually tell you a little bit more about it. Mostly because I don't have to talk about 
stats? Yeah. I don't really have to talk a whole lot about baseball stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I just, listen, (laughs) I'm not a sportsy person and it's fine. Uh, okay. So the Dodgers moved from New York to LA at the end of their 1957 season and their first season in California began in 1958. Uh, so we've talked a little bit about the Dodgers in some past episodes, um, and they were very popular and had a very strong fan base in New York. Um, but the team owner, uh, who was Walter O'Malley at the time, he decided to relocate to try to increase earnings. Uh, the, the main major league baseball was expanding west. Um, they were building stadiums, forming teams. Um, for the most part, they had really been kind of concentrated like east coast, a little bit in the Midwest. Yeah. Um, and they realized that they had this huge untapped market in the entire rest of the country. Yeah. Uh, so they were starting to expand further west in order to kind of um, profit off of that. And so Walter O'Malley decided that even though his team was doing pretty well in New York, Maybe they could do even better uh, in a different city that didn't have other teams that were based out of the same city. So, you know, we have the Dodgers, the Giants, the Mets, the Yankees. They're all in New York. They really like their baseball. They love their baseball, at least in the 50s. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's still a big thing there today, too. But, like, that's a lot of teams in one city. Mm Mm-hmm. And so he decided, like, maybe it's getting a little bit too crowded. Let's let's go somewhere we're the only team in town because, uh, like, we're doing all right now. But think of how many more fans and how much bigger our stadium could be mm-hmm. if there was no competition, right? Um, and he had been trying for about a decade to get a new stadium built for the Dodgers. Uh, But he was really struggling to come to an agreement with city officials. And so he just kind of decided, like, we're never going to get this new stadium. We're always going to be playing out of this small rundown thing that's constantly in need of repairs and that can't really seat a huge crowd. Let's just bounce. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, the the home, uh, the team's home field, Ebbets Field, uh, it was pretty small. Uh, it was constantly needing repairs. Um, and so, you know, he wanted to, instead of trying to, like, keep fixing this old rinky-dink rundown smallish stadium, he thought it would be better and easier for the team to just build it from the ground up. Uh, and that way they could make it larger. Um, and his ideal stadium would not only be a pretty large stadium that could hold quite a lot of fans, But it would also have a movie theater, automated ticketing systems, which was a huge step forward in the 50s. Like that would have been a draw in and of itself if he had had that uh, automated system put in place. And lots and lots of parking uh, because their current stadium or their current home field uh, didn't really have a ton of parking. And so it it was hard for people to get to games um, unless they lived in the city and were able to take public transport. You couldn't really draw people in from... Um, other areas of the city super easily because of how long it would take them to get to and from. And you couldn't pull people in from surrounding areas. People weren't coming in from, you know, like uh, Jersey or, you know, other places that in theory were close enough to come to see the ball game. But if you can't park your car, yeah, what are you going to do? <laughs> um, so that was what he ideally wanted to do. Um, and they had the money to, to find, to buy the building and to build or to build the building. Um, But they were really struggling to find a large enough area in New York 
um, where they could. And he really didn't want to take the team out of Brooklyn. So like they're looking in Brooklyn, trying to find a place large enough to build this nice big old stadium. Um, and they just really couldn't seem to figure out how to do that. Um, and O'Malley even asked uh, the city planner at the time, Robert Moses, to condemn a plot of land in order to bring the purchase price down. So his thinking was, there is this plot of land that's available. It's very expensive. Uh, most developers aren't even considering it seriously because of the cost of it. Why don't you just condemn it? I'll swoop in, uh, buy it for my stadium. Everybody wins. Mostly me, but everybody wins. Yeah. Uh, and Robert Moses didn't want that. He actually wanted to move the team from Brooklyn to Queens because of just the the sheer chaos of traffic during game days. <laughs> he wanted to alleviate some of that. And so he didn't want the team to stay in Brooklyn. So O'Malley was trying to not leave and Robert Moses was trying to force him out. Uh, and he agreed eventually that Brooklyn wasn't the place for the Dodgers. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that's quite what Robert Moses had in mind uh, <laughs> when he finally agreed that Brooklyn wasn't the place. But that's that's how it ended up. Meanwhile, while, you know, O'Malley is coming to this decision, um, the Giants also decided to move to California for different reasons. Um, they were constantly being overshadowed by the Yankees. Uh, and they were starting to have some financial difficulties as a result of it. Mm. They just they didn't have quite the same like large dedicated fan base that the Dodgers did. Um, and so people like they liked the Giants, but they weren't exactly people's first choice for who to go watch play. So, yeah. you know, if anybody else had a different game going on, that was where they were going to go instead. Uh, and it tended to happen that Yankees games and Giants games fell very close to each other. So uh, a lot of the time people would rather spend the money on a ticket to the Yankees as opposed to to the Giants. Um, so they were just really struggling. Um, like they had fans that were loyal, but not many of them. Yeah. And not enough to really... They were also loyal hey. to other. <laughs> they were also, well, there was that, but like also the Yankees were so famous. Oh, yeah. That even the loyal Giants fans were going to go to the Yankees games at least some of the time, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and they had like a small dedicated fan base when they needed a medium to large dedicated fan base to keep things going, um, especially against their very famous neighbors, the Yankees. Uh, and they just, they didn't really have it. They didn't have the numbers. Um, fan attendance was pretty inconsistent from one game to the next, especially depending on who else was playing that weekend. Um, and so they, he realized that they needed to move to keep the team going. Um, and he figured that if they relocated, um, they would actually be able to draw in a lot more fans because they really did have a good team and they had a lot of big names, but they just, they were outshined yeah. um, by the other teams that they were trying to share a city with. And so he realized that they needed to move in order to just keep the team alive, not even to make it grow, but to keep it going uh, because they were really struggling financially speaking. Um, and originally, the owner of the Giants, Horace Stoneham, he was planning to relocate somewhere into the Midwest. He thought that that might be the place to go because there is just 
so much space in the Midwest. Um, and the MLB had kind of started creeping into the Midwest before mm-hmm. they were creeping onto the West Coast. But there was still a lot of opportunities. There were a lot of cities without teams. Yeah. Uh, all over throughout the Midwest. And so he was kind of originally thinking that that might be the place to go. He thought that there would be an opportunity there for the Giants to do better. But relocating a professional baseball team is very difficult and it's very expensive. There's a lot of cost and a lot of logistics and it's just a headache all around. Yeah, uh, And you can't just pick up and move. That's not a decision that... you a team owner can just make on their own. They have to actually get permission from the MLB uh, in order to do so. Yep. And after hearing that Stoneham was seriously considering moving the Giants, O'Malley approached him uh, with the idea of having both teams move out to California where he was already planning to go because then they could share the cost And they could also kind of coordinate together logistically to make the whole process a lot easier and a lot less financially burdensome on both teams. Uh, If they shared it, it wouldn't cost individually as much. Hmm. Um, And so in May of 1957, the National League owners did, in fact, vote to allow both teams to relocate from New York to California, uh, but only if they both went. Oh. Yes. So they put they, you know, they had kind of cooked up this plan together and they approached the MLB about it. And the owners of the National League took it under consideration and went, you know what? Yeah, sure. We're trying to expand into California anyway. You know, you both have valid reasons for wanting to move. This does make it a lot easier. Sure. But you both got to go. Yeah. You gotta go. You gotta go. If either team decided to back out or to relocate to a different area instead of to California, then neither team would be allowed to move. The um, approval uh, would be revoked and they would all be stuck in New York again. Yeah. (laughs) uh, (laughs) Struggling to get what they wanted and needed. Um, And so they did. Both teams moved out to California, um, the Dodgers to L.A. and the Giants to San Francisco. Uh, And that's kind of interesting because the Giants and the Dodgers have been huge rivals since 1890 when both teams were founded. Um, And, you know, part of that was because they were in such close proximity. They were literally um, a metro train away from each other. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there was just this like huge sense of competition and, and rivalry between the two teams. And there is still a sense of rivalry between them, but it's not nearly as intense now. Yeah. Uh, like they're both in the same state, but they don't share a city. Um, they're not fighting over fans in the same <laughs> way that they were. So the, the, the relationship, the the rivalry is alive and healthy, but it is definitely diminished. Yeah. Um, and thankfully, despite their rivalry, they were both able to coordinate and to cooperate uh, for them to move out to California and to kind of start a new chapter for themselves, but also for Major League Baseball. Because that, you know, that was a big boon to have two established teams um, pop up on the West Coast that really did kind of open it up for new teams to be founded and to be taken seriously in California. Yeah. Um, I mean, nothing quite compares to the status that the Yankees have. Uh, yeah. 
<laughs> but it meant that people were willing to play again or willing to go to these other other teams as well because you know they were playing against the Dodgers and the Giants. Yeah. So it wasn't just like, ooh, these these upstarts who <laughs> you know just showed up out of nowhere one day. Like it 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 led uh it lent um kind of like some weight and some credibility. It lent some weight and some credibility to all of the new teams that were being formed uh, by having some of the established ones relocate. Oh, okay. Yep, so that is California baseball. Okay. No. Oh. Well, I think uh, that's all of it for this episode. That is. We had just the three uh, this time around, which is good because I went a little bit long on Charles de Gaulle and I snuck in a fourth one with cheese. Uh, but that's okay. I, we needed something light. Yeah. It, it had been pretty <laughs> serious for a while there. It had. Yeah. Um, and um, I think Charles de Gaulle is going to come up, at least in passing, in a couple other episodes when I was doing the research during his presidency. He, he comes up a lot at different pivotal points in history. Uh, he he threw his support behind JFK against the Russians during the space race and um, just all kinds of things. He, like I had to really make a decision about how much we were going to talk yeah. about De Gaulle because <laughs> the same thing um, with uh, Chow and Lai in the last episode, it wasn't that there wasn't enough information. It was that there was too much. Mm -hmm. There was so much information. What do you talk about? Yeah. And where <laughs> do you stop talking? Mm -hmm. um, for sure. And there's definitely some really cool, fun, like tangentially related things that I came up with in the research that I really wanted to talk about, uh, but that it, it just wasn't really feasible to do so. Uh, so we'll bring those things up in the chorus break episode, uh, because I have to. I have to talk about the man who lived in the in the Charles de Gaulle airport for 18 years. Ooh. Right? Interesting. It's a fascinating story. We'll talk about it on the chorus break because we're running a little long as it is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there were so many, so many cool things. The the research really took me all over the place. It was a good episode, and I am so excited for the next one. <laughs> the next episode is amazing. I'm ready for it. Yeah, she's been. Oh, I've been so excited. I've been looking forward to this episode uh, since we first looked at the lyrics. Yeah. Yeah. She, yeah. I'm so excited. That was probably one of the first things you had down. I. <laughs> research wise. Realistically, I could do the episode without doing any research. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to do the research, uh, but like I could just casually talk about everything in it. Yeah. Without having to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry, I'll, I will do the research. I'll do right by everybody. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm looking forward to it. So that means we have to end this episode, though, so that I can move on to the next one. Okay. Okay. So we're going to go ahead and I think we'll wrap it up and we'll catch mm -hmm. you guys for the next one. All right. So thanks for listening. Yep. Bye. Bye. listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it. It really helps us out. Our sources are in the show notes. If you'd like to reach out to us about this or any other episode, drop a line to who started the fire pod at gmail.com. Want to help support the show? You can find a listener support link in the show page. We really appreciate your generosity. We hope you'll join us again next week for the next lyric. 